You're listening to WHTT Speaks Out. Each week, Chuck Carlson and members of We Hold These Truths look into events that are, for the most part, ignored or overlooked by the mainstream media. And we analyze these events to get free and periodic updates to this program and our other interesting programs. Be sure to enter your email address in the subscribe to WHTT box on the right side of our website, WHTT.org. And now, ready, set, let the sparks fly. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is We Hold These Truths Speaks Out. Craig Hansen, would you be so kind as to introduce our guest, Chuck Baldwin? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's our pleasure this evening to have Dr. Pastor Chuck Baldwin with us. And what's really fun for me in, in this, this is the first time I've been able to talk live in person with someone I actually voted for in a national presidential and vice presidential election. And I'm looking at right here, it says, for U.S. President Peruca, God, Family, and Republic, peruca2004.com, when, when uh, Michael Peruca was running for president and Chuck Baldwin was his vice presidential candidate. And I, I found the yard sign out in my garage today, so I, I pulled that out to celebrate this uh, evening. So this is really an honor to have Pastor Chuck Baldwin with us this evening. For those of you who are not aware of Pastor Baldwin, he was the founder of Crossroad Baptist Church in Pensacola, Florida, and he moved from there to be the pastor of Liberty Fellowship in Kalispell, Montana. Politically wise, like I mentioned, he was running with Michael Perutka on the Constitution Party ticket in 2004 and as their, their presidential candidate in 2008. He's been very active, obviously, in the Christian political side movement, what was interesting is that Congressman Ron Paul actually endorsed presidential candidate Baldwin in uh, 2007 for the uh, 2008 ticket. One thing I came across that Pastor Baldwin said in the same month that he was endorsed by Ron Paul, and this is uh, quoting Pastor Baldwin, Unfortunately, it's been the Christian right's blind support for President Bush in particular and the Republican Party in general that has precipitated a glaring and perhaps fatal defect. The Christian right cannot or will not honestly face the real danger confronting these United States. On the whole, they fail to understand the issues that are critical to our nations and their own survival. Sadly, this is what the Christian right just doesn't get. 90% of the time, it doesn't matter whether a Republican or a Democrat wins the White House. All the pro-family, the pro-life, traditional values, conservative talk is just that, talk. Republicans use conservative rhetoric the same way Democrats use the liberal rhetoric. Neither party believes what they are telling their constituents. They merely say what constituents want to hear in order to get elected. After which, they set out to do what their elitist, globalist manipulators tell them to do, end quote. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it's such a, a privilege to get together tonight to spend these few moments with Dr. Chuck Baldwin. We thank you for his life of patriotism and of service to you, and we look forward to the interaction tonight, expounding upon your word and just sharing uh, the life that you've lived through uh, Pastor Baldwin and sharing our experiences together. We just pray your blessing in our time. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Pastor Baldwin, it's a, such a pleasure to have you with us this evening, and I get the opportunity to ask the first question for you. We, at, we hold these truths. Pretty much our ministry is to try to get the Christian evangelicals to realize the dangers of Christian Zionism. And, and like as, uh, Chuck mentioned uh, as we were talking, 
that all of us here at We Hold These Truths have come out of the Christian Zionism mindset. Our journey has been varied, but we all share that commonality. And so for you, Pastor Baldwin, you were pretty much, uh, and I believe you were a Christian Zionist at some time. If you could give us your journey, that'd be great. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and it's great to be with you guys. Uh, Thank you very much for allowing me to be on your program. Yeah, my journey is probably similar to yours and, and so many others. I was schooled from two different Bible colleges in Christian Zionism. Although that term was not used all that much, but the doctrinal essence of it was exactly that. And being schooled in it all of my life, and then going into the ministry in 1975, for the next 30-plus years, I taught what I had been taught and preached it and it was right down the, you know, the dispensationalist uh, Schofield line exclusively, and I taught it as fact without question. And I suppose during the last five years or so that I was still ministering in Florida, and I left Florida in 2010 and moved here to Montana in that year. So probably from about 2005 or so uh, through 2010, my spirit was stirred within me. Each time I, I made a statement in concert with the Christian Zionist philosophy, uh, each time I preached a message or taught a lesson, my spirit was stirred in, in a very uncomfortable way. And at first, I just didn't think too much about it, but it persisted. And over time, I got to where that I could not even address the issue comfortably because my own heart and my own mind were conflicted. I didn't know why. I, you know, I've been teaching it for over 30 years, so I knew it inside and out. It wasn't the fact that I wasn't comfortable with what I've been taught and the whole outline and essence of what I was teaching, very familiar to me. But at the same time, my spirit was conflicted. After really, i, I got to say, several years of that, it finally, you know, thick head, you know, I finally came to the realization that, you know what, this is more than just an emotional feeling or intellectual curiosity or, or whatever. I mean, after... All of this time, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a novice anymore at this point. You know, I'm a, I'm a 30 plus year veteran, pastor, Bible teacher, radio, broadcaster, etc. I recognized that this was something that the Holy Spirit was speaking to me about. Well, that prompted then a very intense study on my part to try and figure out what the Lord was trying to show me. To do that, I had to unlearn everything that I had been taught, which is, that's the hardest thing in the world to do, is for someone who is my age, and after all of these years, to try and unlearn something that you have believed and taught all over your life is very difficult. But in that process, I I determined that I would not rely on commentators and other men's opinions but I would just go to the scriptures 
and prayerfully asked the Holy Spirit to enlighten me and illuminate me regarding this subject. And that's what I did. And it took several years. After I moved here in 2010, I was in that process of, of studying and learning and unlearning and relearning. So somewhere around, I would guess, 2014 is when I began actually publicly disclosing my revelation in terms of this subject. And I began to very slowly and very carefully take my fellowship here in, in Kalispell, Montana, through my thought processes and my study and so forth, and began sharing publicly, which, which includes a national audience with, with the live streaming that we have every Sunday afternoon, and then the, the video that goes out uh, afterward, which is online, archived, 24 hours a day. So obviously this became a very public uh, situation at that point. And the more I got into it, the more I became convinced that everything I had been taught relative to what we would call Christian Zionism was absolutely false and that the Bible did not teach what I had been taught that the Bible taught and that the subject of Christian Zionism, as it's commonly understood by the vast majority of evangelicalism today, is, I believe, a blatant falsehood. So that led me to begin to publicly discuss it, write about it, and so forth. So the columns that you are now referring to and the messages are the result of all of those years, first of all, of, of the moving of the Holy Spirit in my heart, the discomfort level, which caused my personal study from an objective point of view, totally putting aside everything I had been taught and just asking God to show me through his word the truth. And then the careful building of the uh, what I believe is the truth in Scripture relative to this subject very systematically and carefully so that I was able to articulate it in a way that perhaps people could understand. So and trying to be as brief as possible, that is my journey. Well, Pastor Baldwin, I've listened to you on YouTube, and it, it, you're right, you are a very public figure. And something that you say that, as a general rule, you do not use Bible commentators that are in the 20th century. You tend to go back to the earlier commentators. Could you address that a little bit? Yes, and that's, that's on purpose. I discovered in, in all of the study that I referred to a moment ago, I discovered that after the Zionist state of Israel became a, a state in 1948, that there was a humongous, if I can use that word, change in the commentators and, and the theologians and the public writing and speaking of the predominant Bible teachers after Israel became a state than before it became a state. And it's so noticeable. I mean, I, you know, I challenge anybody who's listening to go to any of the commentators of the Word of God, the great Bible scholars who wrote before the, the 20th century, and you will notice a distinct difference between the interpretations of Revelation and the prophets of the Old Testament and virtually anything relative to the second advent 
of Christ and the prophecies relating to it between those two eras. That, to me, spoke volumes. Why was there such a difference? I mean, you've got to think about the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in which the vast majority of Bible scholars, commentators, and teachers taught something that was diametrically opposite of what Bible teachers and commentators were were saying after Israel became a nation in 1948. What was the thing that made this change? And the only thing that made the change was the creation of the state of Israel. My interpretation of that is that what happened is after Israel became a state in 1948, Bible commentators, Bible teachers, pastors, theologians, etc., began to interpret the scripture in light of the birth of the state of Israel in 1948 instead of interpreting the birth of the state of Israel in 1948 by the Bible. I think there was a reversal in, in a presupposition. Now, instead of the Bible being the, the presupposition, the scripture itself being the presupposition, the creation of the state of Israel was the presupposition, and we have to make the Bible fit the, the creation of the state of Israel. And, of course, Schofieldism and Darbyism were major influence in that. I don't think it really would have happened to the degree and with the speed that it happened, the acceptance of this teaching, I mean, without the popularity of the Schofield Reference Bible. And then schools began, you know, that was at the time when uh, evangelical Christianity was experiencing an explosion here in this country especially, and Bible colleges and seminaries were beginning to rise across the country, and almost all of them had adopted uh, the Darby slash Schofield interpretation of this subject, and they began to promulgate it in the classrooms and the seminaries and the Bible colleges, and these men graduated, went out and started churches, took churches, etc. And so over a period of several decades following the birth of the state of Israel in 1948, the popularity of this theology mushroomed across the country at such a at such a rate that it didn't take too long before it became the predominant thought relative to prophetic scripture. So when I look at commentators today, when I refer to commentators today, and I I want to read what men have written before, then then I think the only way that I can get a true sense of of the uh, historicity of Bible teaching and Bible thought by by these men of God is to go back to an unjaded time before the nation of Israel was created, which completely changed the entire way of thinking of the Christian population. I, that's why I only go back to uh, commentators who wrote in the like the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries then you are dealing with, in my opinion, a very unbiased, a very uh, unjaded point of view relative to the Scripture. They're not trying to make the Scripture fit the the birth of the state of Israel. Uh, They're just interpreting the Scripture according to the pure interpretation of the Word without that bias. So I think that that's why so many Bible commentators, scholars, and teachers today have a very jaundiced interpretation and a very jaundiced outlook on prophecy, which they are trying to accommodate the creation of the state of Israel. Dr. Baldwin, 
in looking at and coming up with a definition for what's become popular to call Christian Zionism, and we keep groping for a better term, because the term Christian Zionism implies that you can somehow meld together Zionism and Christianity and get a faith. And of course, we hold that that is no faith. When you blend together Zionism and Christianity, you have faithless faith or faithless theology. And so we sometimes have called it Zionized Christianity or even Neo-Christianity to get the idea across that it needs to be examined. But the definition that we finally came up with in our own minds was that Christian Zionism is the belief that the physical state of Israel is the fulfillment of biblical prophecy. Very simple few words. What is your feeling about that definition, or do you have a better definition that we can use in talking to our loved ones and friends and and all the people around us who are involved in this, uh, people in my own church, I know many who are actually influenced by Christian Zionism, and yet they, they go to a church that's not, that's not oriented that way. No, I think your definition is right on. I don't know that I could uh, come up with a, a better definition. I think what you just described is pretty much accurate with, with reality. Okay. Now, for you to take this step and basically it, it changing your theology – that took a lot of boldness. It took a lot of courage. Any blowback with friends or <laughs> colleagues? <laughs> you bet. You you know the answer to that question. Uh, oh, boy. Yeah, I never realized how intricately this theology of neo-Christianity, if you want to call it that, or Christian Zionism for sake of discussion, is in depth into the very soul and psyche of so many Christian people. I, th- that was really a surprise to me because I got, I got to be honest that whenever I was when I was teaching that theology and and that prophetic scriptural interpretation in my heart, it wasn't a I don't know how to express this. It it wasn't part and parcel with my faith, even though I I believed what I'd been taught. And I taught what I had been taught. And at that point, there was no even real question about it. I didn't need it to be the Christian that I was or, or to, be the, to have the interpretation that I had about who Jesus is and salvation and, and the essentials of the Christian faith and, the, and then the second coming of Christ. All these things were not dependent upon that interpretation of Israel. Since I have made this dramatic change in my interpretation of Israel and and the prophetic scriptures that relate to it. I have found that so many of our brethren that are in what we call Christian Zionism, it seems to me that their interpretation of Israel is equal in importance to the overall faith and theology that they embrace as any of the major doctrines. It seems to me that their interpretation of Israel, the state of Israel, the the physical Israel created in 1948 as being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy relative to the return of Christ, that that is as much a part of their fundamental theology as is anything else that they believe. The deity of Christ, the inspiration of scriptures, the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the ascension, 
uh, you know, the blood atonement, all these things that are essential doctrines to the Christian faith, it, it seems to me that the interpretation they have regarding Israel is as important to them as these other solid fundamental tenets of, of Christianity. I find that to be really shocking and disturbing because it's almost as if their faith is dependent upon the state of Israel created in 1948. You see what I'm saying? That yes, it's not just a, an interpretation. That, okay, we can differ. There's a lot of things that we differ on and that we might consider secondary doctrines. But with these Zionists that we're dealing with today, it seems that that's not the case. That when you say something about Israel, not, not Bible Israel, but the modern state of Israel, when you say something about the modern state of Israel, you cast doubt upon it or even criticism upon it, it seems that you are attacking their faith in its heart. And they react with such hostility that it really is hard to imagine how intricate they have allowed this interpretation of Scripture to be relative to their overall understanding of the Bible. So when my friends and, and my fellow ministers and people that I had known for a lifetime began to hear me share the things that I now share relative to the modern state of Israel and all of the theology surrounding that. And then, you know, let's just put it this way. I'm, I'm, I'm no longer accepted in fellowship with so many of these fellows. In fact, you know, the attacks that have been levied against me because of my change of position have been something that I never dreamed would result, but indeed it did. This phenomenon that you're talking about looks like a deliberate thing to me, promoted perhaps by the World Zionist Movement. And this is where we get into these great publications you've done, Perpetual War, A Racket for the Bankers, and I don't need to go any further, the Rothschilds are the bankers and others, and then 70 years of turmoil, treachery, death, and destruction, the anniversary of the State of Israel this year. Is it possible that this Zionist movement, this powerful movement, has so cleverly set out to capture the evangelical movement in order to support the Zionist movement politically all over the world. Is that what we're seeing? Are, are we seeing the, the conscious result of a very powerful movement that's actually controlled by somebody in some ivory tower with a name on the door like Rothschild? Your uh, papers, of course, make very strong connections with the power of these bankers, these controlled units, and we find them to be absolutely true. And we think you're right online, but what about the control over Christian Zionists, over evangelicals, let's say, who become Christian Zionists, like the Southern Baptist Convention that flows through from these power sources? Right, yeah, in my column that, that will be uh, published tomorrow, has even more information on, on that line of questioning. I, I think that if you were to broach that with th these men that promote the modern state of Israel interpretation of prophecy, uh, etc., they would obviously deny point blank any association with the Rothschild banking cartel, which, to be honest with you, most of these fellows probably have never even studied the issue in, in this light, 
they probably have never read about Lord Rothschild. They probably never read about the Rothschild banking cartel. They 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 probably never read about the the connection between the Rothschilds and England and Great Britain at, at the time of the transfer agreement took place that ultimately led to the Balfour Declaration and the State of Israel coming into existence. I, I doubt that most of these men have ever studied any of that. They probably never even heard of any of that, and they're, they're probably not even interested in it. So I don't think, I think if you bring it up in the, in the light of the Rothschilds, in that kind of a, a format, I, they would probably look at you, you know, with glazed eyes and not really even getting where you're coming from, because they're basing their their whole understanding of this subject on their seminary training, on their their Bible college training, on what they've been taught by virtually every pastor that they've sat under, from a child uh, through a teenager into adulthood. All they've heard is the Christian Zionist interpretation. And again, they don't even use the word Zionist for the most part. To them, this is all about biblical interpretation. It's all about staying true to Scripture, etc. So they don't even see it or recognize it. But, but you and I know, and after, you, after your eyes are awakened to this, and you begin to, to study the truth about it, and you get into the, the history of it, then you become aware of the reality yet that, that this was indeed an orchestrated endeavor, that Schofield himself was a controlled, manipulated individual, a man who literally was without credentials and was not even capable of putting together his reference Bible that he did without a lot of help and the fact that it you know that it was owned by Oxford University which is owned by the the Zionists and it was totally controlled from the very beginning of the writing of the Schofield Bible which without the Schofield Bible Darbyism would probably have died the whole Christian Zionist movement would probably have died had it not been for the popularity of the Schofield reference Bible so we we've come to understand the total ramifications of this and what was behind it. But in terms of when you're talking to these preachers and Bible teachers and so forth, I don't think they have any clue about that. And I think if you try to bring it up, or when we do try to bring it up, and I do in my writings and in and many of my sermons as well, there's a big disconnect in their minds because they've never been taught it. They They don't understand it. I had to learn this on my own. You know, nobody taught me this either. You know, nobody sat down and schooled me in this. In the process of, you know, reevaluating where, where I was theologically and what God was showing me, as I described earlier in this in this broadcast, I had to go where the truth led me. I, I didn't have any preconceived notion as to where I was going with this. I, I didn't say to myself, "Well, I'm, I'm going to find a way to become this, or I'm going to find a way to become that." I just wanted to study the truth and let it take me wherever it led me. And I didn't care where it led me. I just wanted to be led by truth. And so I had to learn all this on my own. And I think the same could be said with you fellows, I'm sure. And in any of, of, of us that have come through this journey, we've had to learn this on our own. So when, when we're talking with these other fellows who don't have any cognizance of this, there's a disconnect. And I don't think they even associate it 
But what I think, I think there is a, a great conspiracy behind this, and I think the great conspirator is Satan himself. I believe that Satan himself is the one that has created this confusing doctrine and, the, and this convoluted doctrine that is associated with Christian Zionism, which whenever you get into it, it with any depth, the deeper you get into it, the more convoluted it becomes. And the Bible tells us that God is not the author of confusion, that only Satan is the author of confusion, of course. And so if there's confusion, it's, it's because the devil has a hand in it. So I think that the creation of the modern state of Israel and, of course, the, the cabal that we know as the Rothschilds and, and all these related individuals associated are individuals that have created a great confusion among the body of Christ, have distracted the body of Christ, have given a false hope and a false sense of Christian thought and theology through the Schofieldism, the Darbyism, and the Dispensationalism. And as a result, I think the church has, for the most part, lost its spiritual power. And I don't think it'll ever get it back until it renounces Christian Zionism. Wow. That's excellent, because obviously the, the church in, in the United States today is pretty impotent. You don't see the church attendance going up uh, across the board. But one thing I wanted to ask you, uh, Pastor Baldwin, one of the other areas in which you've kind of gone against the, the herd is not going the 501c3 status. Can you explain that a little bit? Because that kind of frees you to speak as the Lord shows you. Correct. And that awareness came at about the same time that uh, the discussion that we've been talking about here took place in my heart. Yeah, when we left Florida and came to Montana and we started Liberty Fellowship here, I determined from the very beginning that we would not be uh, established as a 501c3 nonprofit organization. I was beginning to become aware down in my pastorate in Florida of how cumbersome that status was. And I was pretty bold in my preaching back even then. Of course, our church there was 501c3. It was, it was traditional. It was organized. It was incorporated. I mean, we were just like, you know, 99% of all the other churches in America in that regard. And I could sense as I was beginning to relearn these things and, and to become aware of these things and then trying to preach these things I was becoming more and more aware of how entangled I was as the pastor of a 501c3 church and the difficulty that I was going to have in the future to preach freely the things that I think needed to be preached. And so this was, this was going on my mind at the same time. So this was another conflict that I was dealing with as I was making my way through all of this thought process. And so when we came to Montana, I determined that, well, you know what, there's only one way that I can see to settle this, and that's just not to get entangled in any shape, manner, or form with the government and the nonprofit status and subjecting yourself to the 501c3 rules and regulations of the Internal Revenue Code and, and just being completely independent, unorganized, unincorporated. And that gave me complete and total, and still does, complete and total freedom to preach as I feel God would have me preach without any encumbrance whatsoever. So all of those two issues kind of came about at the same time. Doctor, I notice you seem to have a really good handle 
on the economic side, I think very few pastors do. You talk about federal deficits, federal debts, the rising indebtedness, and, and you treat it as, as a reality that people should be concerned about. Is this an area where we can reach Christians by talking to them about the, their financial future, about what's happening to their money, what's happening to the massive indebtedness of our country, uh, its obligations that you talked about in one of your letters pretty thoroughly. Do you find that this reaches people that, that you were trying to influence? You know, my experience is that the entire liberty message, the natural law message as found in the scriptures relative to government, to liberty, to economics, is very attractive to a large segment of the American population, not all of whom are Christians. And that's one of the things that I have found so amazingly interesting is that since I've had this complete reversal of, of thought and, and ideology, philosophy, theology, etc., and I've been preaching this you know, boldly, from the pulpit and writing it boldly in my columns that are syndicated nationally each week, I found that there's a host of people that are attracted to that message, and many of them are not Christians. And, and the thing that that has opened up for us is the opportunity to share with them the gospel. And we have had, well, in the first six years of our existence as a fellowship, We've had over 500 public professions of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, you would think that a lot of people on the other side of this theological aisle would look at what I'm doing and they would say, well, Christ has only called us to preach the gospel. We're not supposed to meddle in politics and they look at everything as politics, even though they're the most political people of all. Yes. they would say, oh, you, you, you know, God can't bless that and that you're not supposed to do that. That's not what God's called us to do. Well, then how do you explain all these people being saved? You know, we have reached people in a way with the gospel and seeing people converted to Christ in a way that I never saw when I was in the, the church in, in Florida and the 501c3 and nonprofit and, and the whole nine yards. I mean, we had people saved, don't get me wrong, we saw people saved, but nothing like to the degree that we've seen people saved since we've been preaching here in Montana. And I think the reason for that is because the question you asked regarding economics, the, you know, the question you brought up about war, perpetual war, the war for bankers, you know, the economic benefits of war to the war profiteers, et cetera, the whole constitutional government, the liberty orientation, the biblical command and the natural law regarding the Second Amendment rights to keep and bear arms, that this is not just a constitutional issue, this is a biblical issue, etc. This message resonates with a large segment of, of, of people. And these pastors don't realize that what they're doing by preaching this, this Zionist philosophy of theology and this, you know, staying away from the salient issues of the day, staying away from you know, economics, staying away from politics, staying away from, you know, war and staying away from uh, Second Amendment issues and the gun confiscation and all. And they just avoid it, won't talk about it. And what they're doing is they're alienating a large 
large segment of the population that are hungry to hear the truth relative to these issues. What about the millennial age? I notice in looking at your church picture, you have a lot of young people associated with your church. Are yeah. you attracting millennials? Yes, we have. Our church has a, a very healthy mix of, of age groups and, and a racial mix. Uh, we have people from you know virtually every, uh, every, every race represented in our congregation. We have the very young. We have young couples with, with very young families, and we have middle-aged people, and, and then we, of course, the senior citizens. And it, I mean, it, it is just a, a, a real healthy mixture of, of families and age groups and, and so forth. And, I, and the result, of course, is, you know, we have a, a very loving, warm fellowship, you know, that people just, there's a warmth and there's a fellowship and there's a love among our fellowship that I haven't that I haven't experienced it on in, uh, maybe ever. You know, I really feel sorry for the pastors that are trying to avoid all these issues because if they only understood the hunger and the thirst that's out there in their communities for the truth and for the relevance of these issues as it relates to scripture and, and natural law and so forth, and if they began to to you know to preach and teach these truths they would be attracting so many more people than they are now in, instead of alienating people with, with, you know, I mean, think about the Christians that live in Palestine. You know, I, I know several missionaries that, that are laboring in northern Africa, the Middle East, and Eastern Europe, and we're in communication quite regularly. These men and women all know what's going on over there, unlike the churches in, in the States, they, they know what Zionist Israel is all about. They know what the Palestinian people are going through. They know about the persecution. They know about the labor camps. They know about the imprisonment of, of little boys and girls. They know about, you know, everything that's happening relative to that, that whole conflict over there. And you don't hear them talking about, you know, the Bible says support the state of Israel no matter what they do. Oh, if they... You know, if they kill 60 people on one day, which was the 70th anniversary of their, of their birth on May 14th, they killed 60 Palestinians on that day. They wounded over 1,000 others, maybe 2,000 others. And, and yet these Christian Zionists like John Hagee and the others, you know, they'll say, oh, this is of God, you know, and anything they do, you know, bless Israel and God will bless you and all this stuff. The missionaries that work over there among those people, that's, that's, not, what, that's not what they say. That's not what they believe. They know better. And, and they hear, they hear these, these televangelists and these pastors and these radio preachers talking about all this from a fanatical Zionist perspective and then basing it on their interpretation of Scripture and they have completely a completely different concept. They know what's going on over there, and, and they are ministering to people not from this Schofieldism, dispensationalist mindset, but they're giving people the truth of the Word of God relative to what the Bible says, that Christ, you know, is, is we're in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile. We're all one in the Lord neither male nor female, you know, we're neither bond or free, we're all one in Christ. And they are reaching people with the gospel over there in that part of the world in ways that 
people here in the States could not even imagine. Many of these Palestinians that, that are being killed and maimed and imprisoned and so forth by, by the Zionist Israel, IDF forces, etc., are Christians. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know, you talk to the average pastor and the average radio preacher today or whatever, and you talk about the Palestinians, and they, they conjure up images of, of ISIS and, and Daesh and all these extremist Muslim terrorist groups who are trying to destroy everyone who's not a Muslim. And, and they got this image built up in their minds because of all these Zionist preachers out there. But that's not the truth. Many, many, many of the, of the Palestinians are Christian people. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I remember the times that I've been to Israel, and I've preached in churches over there, and I've ministered in Israel. And I can tell you my experience over there was that the, the Christians were mostly from the Palestinian community. They were not from the Jewish community. Oh. They were not from the Israeli community. They were from the Palestinian community. I, I, I don't know if I saw them. I've met one or two uh, converted uh, uh, Jews. I really can't remember. I'm just saying that for for the benefit of discussion. But the vast majority of, of all of the churches I preached in were were born again Palestinians, and and these Palestinian people they are they don't understand why their brothers and sisters in Christ in America think that they are the enemy. They don't understand why they are being targeted by. American bombs and, and, and military supplies given to the Zionist State of Israel and why they are the ones that are, that are being killed and wounded and maimed and incarcerated. And they're the ones that are, that are being inflicted with all this mayhem, which they know is coming from the support of the United States government, and they know it's coming with the support of the American Christian community. And they're going, we're Christians, we believe in Christ. We're your brothers and sisters. We're going to be spending together heaven together. Why are you killing us? Why are you bombing us? Why are you torturing us? Why are you giving these, these Zionists all this military uh, hardware that they're able to use against? And, and, and they are in a total state of confusion and angst of soul because of the way that America has sided itself with Israel and has made an enemy out of people that are our brothers and sisters in Christ. I had that same experience when I was in Gaza. And there was a Baptist church in Gaza, and I got to know the people who preached there, and I went to the church, and as you say, uh, a number of them were, many of them were Palestinians because there were practically no Americans left there. But there were two American missionaries who wouldn't leave. They said, these are our people and we're not going anywhere. And they wouldn't go home even though they'd been called home and their salary had been cut off. One of them, a female, was, uh, was teaching at the English, she, she taught an English class at the Islamic University of Gaza City. So just as you say, you hit it right on the head with my own experience there in 2002. Yeah, so, so that's what the, the Christians in America and the preachers never even think about. No. And, and all this does is complicate the ministry of, of the, the, the real missionaries and the real Christians that are in that part of the world that are trying to labor among these people. And, and what Christians would be shocked to know is that 
perhaps the greatest revivals that are conducted across the world today are being conducted among the Muslim people of the Middle East and Northern Africa and Eastern Europe. Many of, of the Muslim people are coming to Christ as a result of these missionaries and these Christians, these Arabic Christians and preachers. Uh, I have a lot of them that follow us online and, and they communicate with me quite often and tell me their stories and so forth. And, and the numbers of, of people from the Muslim community that are being saved today dwarf the kind of conversion rate that we find anywhere with the possible exception of China. So everything that is commonly understood among the Christian Zionist movement here in this country is almost polar opposite of what truth and reality really are. Pastor, I think that this would be a, a good line that you just made to, to wind this up with. It's been terrific. What you've told us today is very helpful, very useful. Well, thank you very much. And you guys are to be commended for the work that you're doing and, and trying to get this message out. And I, I pray that God will extend your, your ministry manyfold. And the encouraging thing is that my journey... I think is being multiplied all over the country as God is speaking to the heart of open-minded believers, and they are becoming dissatisfied with what they've been taught relative to Christian Zionism, and they are themselves searching for the truth. And all truth comes from God, and all truth leads to God. And so as people have an open heart for truth, it will lead them to the truth of Christ, and of course it will take them to Christ and I think that we are in the beginning throes of really a, a great movement away from the falsehood of Christian Zionism into the truth of the scripture relative to this issue. And I think really we are on the forefront maybe of this brand new growing movement, which I believe God is raising up. And we may not be alive to even see the the culmination of where this leads to. But I think down the road, we are going to see a revival of true biblical Christianity, an escape from Christian Zionism. And that will lead to, I think, a great revival, in, if not nationally, at least regionally. I think we can expect God to move in great ways as people see the light, Christian Zionism, and see the, the falsehood of it, come out of it, embrace the truth. And as we know, the truth sets us free. Thank you, Pastor Chuck Baldwin. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for listening. If you like this program, please let your friends know about it and our other thought-provoking podcast. And be sure to visit our website, whtt.org, for a wealth of information on Christian Zionism and other critical issues that we face. Also, at whtt.org, you can watch for free, our award-winning documentary film, Christian Zionism, The Tragedy and the Turning, Part 1. Join us in our efforts to wake the town and tell the people. Start small, think big, and press on towards the straight gate.